this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. and I'm a first-year thoracic surgery fellow at the Cleveland Clinic. I'm joined today by Dr. Siva Raja, a staff thoracic surgeon in the Department of Thoracic and Cardiovascular Surgery and the surgical director of the clinic's Center for Esophageal Disease. Uh, Dr. Raja, thank you for being here today uh, to review our approach to the management of echolasia. Uh, let's begin with a case. You've been referred an otherwise healthy 41-year-old female with a history of progressive dysphagia for approximately five years. She went, underwent an EGD uh, three years ago when her symptoms were particularly bad, but is unsure if any dilation was performed at that time. Her dysphagia is actually quite manageable with diet modifications, uh, soft foods, liquids, and she does not report any history of regurgitation. Her weight has been stable, uh, and she was referred to her, uh, referred by her primary care physician after an upper GI demonstrated some esophageal dilation. What additional history would you like, and please describe your uh, initial approach to this patient. Andrew, thank you for uh, you know uh, having me on your on your show. <laughs> um, I think that um, achalasia is is such a rare disease, but we do see a lot of it, and I think the presentation can be all over the board. I think the the case that you presented is not an uncommon presentation where someone's been having issues for some time, but you know, uh, but has gotten worse in the last few months or whatever. And in this particular case, um, is a patient that has made some diet modification. That's not uncommon. So they have a food aversion to things that have caused them to have dysphagia. And so they've sort of modified their diet consciously or subconsciously in the, for the most part uh, to make them feel like they're okay. So I think in situations like hers, you do want to always have, get a history of, you know, a malignancy history is always something you have to have in the back of your mind when someone has dysphagia because achalasia is a relatively rare finding. So the additional history that I would need for this person would be how much reflux they've been having for the, you know, in their lifetime, have they been on acid medications in the past? If she's had an endoscopy, did she see if they noted at the time there was some narrowing? Whether they had the stretching or not, or dilation, uh, you, know, you, you may want to use the phrase stretching because not everyone knows what dilation means. So in this patient, I want to know about their reflux history, so their cancer risk and whatnot. And I think that uh, barium esophagram, I think, should be the best first test you should always think about. Now, there, are, there are other tests to follow, but uh, the first test should be something that gives you a lot of information with minimal invasiveness. We can look for an Eckhart score, which is uh, a combination of subjective and objective findings. Mm -hmm. And the Eckhart score uh, has uh, four components to it. One is their um, uh, level of dysphagia. The second one is their level of regurgitation. Third one is chest pain, and fourth one is weight loss. And each of them is scored from zero to three for a total score 12, but up to three, uh, people can have um, normal functioning and have some mild dysfunction uh, and, and present with those things. So in my mind, the next test after you have a barium swallow that shows an abnormality, okay, would be to think about an endoscopy. Uh, that will tell you whether you have a, a stricture, peptic stricture, a malignant stricture, or you have a, a motility problem. The one thing in an endoscopy that I always look for in patients who have some kind of an obstructive pathology is the retention of saliva. You don't always have to have retention of food, which is what people assume people with achalasia have, but that's not the case. It's just that their esophagus doesn't empty 
in the same time frame that someone who's esophagus has normal motility with empty, the clearance of saliva often requires some component of peristalsis. And so people who have some retained saliva and endoscopy, you should be highly suspicious of a motor problem. And then the second thing I tell everybody, all my residents, including uh, our friend Andrew here, do an examination on your way in. As opposed to the common concept of doing endoscopy, endoscopic evaluation on withdrawal of scope, achalasia particularly is very important that you examine the esophagus on your way in because or a non-relaxing sphincter is something that could be dilated with just the scope and on your way back, it may look okay. And in people with normal motility, when you insufflate, at some point it opens on its own. If you sit there and you look for that sphincter and there's no uh, opening of the lower subgill sphincter, that makes you highly suspicious for a, um, uh, a non-relaxing sphincter in the absence of other pathology like a peptic stricture or an esophageal mass. And the second thing I would say is that always do a retroflex view um, to make sure that there's nothing, there's not a cardiac lesion or some abnormality, an extrinsic compression that explains the uh, dysphagia. So going back to high resolution manometry, I think it's, um, uh, it's a universally available test right now, so there's no reason not to use a high resolution manometry in 2020. There are two things that make the diagnosis of achalasia. One is the non-relaxing lower sagittal sphincter. So you're looking for your IRP or uh, relaxation pressure being elevated. And the second one is the complete absence of peristalsis. So in the current uh, Chicago classification, uh, we have three types of achalasia, type 1, type 2, and type 3. And currently, um, uh, they're all in the same group, but as a disease process, most people think that uh, type 3 achalasia is a different entity compared to type 1 and type 2, which may be in along the same spectrum. If you have less than 20% panosophageal pressurization, you're thought to have type 1. And if you have more than that, it's 20% it's, it's or more, then you have type 2 achalasia. But as you can imagine, it's just a arbitrary cutoff, and people end up falling in, you know, along the way, where it becomes a spectrum of presentations. I mean, for example, someone with 30% pressurization, panesophageal pressurization, is a type 2 achalasia, along the same category as somebody who could be 100% panesophageal pressurization. And functionally speaking, people with 100% panesophageal pressurization respond well to treatment much more than people with less pressurization. So even though there's type 1 and type 2 achalasia, we tend to think of them in a spectrum and what type of treatment someone should get. So the last test that I would uh, recommend is that once you've established that they have achalasia, you have to think about achalasia as a benign disease that requires long-term follow-up. And it turns out that while a normal esophagus is generally normal, an abnormal achalasia esophagus is uniquely abnormal. So which means that you cannot really compare one person to another person. You have to compare that person to themselves. And so we always recommend a timed barium esophagram where a fixed amount of barium is given to a person. And then we get a, a static image at one minute, two minutes, and five minutes to see what the column height and width are. And that'll allow you to characterize the esophageal emptying as well as the morphology of the esophagus. You know, whether is it dilated, is it sigmoidal, and that allows you to then make uh, assessments after any therapeutic maneuvers as to have you made an objective difference. So I think that in the, to, to recap the workup, you need a esophagram, but I think that once you establish that they have achalasia, you should make sure you have a timed bearing esophagram. 
She get endoscopy so to make sure that there is no pseudoagulation, which is very important, and then a high-resolution manometry to identify specific nature of their motility abnormality. All right, so that is sort of the uh, workup in a nutshell of somebody with presents with dysphagia who is likely to have who has agalasia. Great intro. So uh, for our patient, uh, she undergoes a EGD, a timed barium swallow, and manometry. The barium swallow demonstrates a column of contrast at 13 centimeters at one minute and 17 centimeters at five minutes, respectively. Uh, manometry demonstrates a normal LES pressure, but 100% failed swallows, which, as we discussed, is suggestive of type 2 achalasia. Her EGD demonstrated a patchless esophagus with some mild resistance to crossing the lower esophageal sphincter uh, while going in, but no esophagitis. So based on these findings, what operative and non-operative interventions would be available, and how do you go about deciding what therapy to offer a particular patient? So I think in this situation, you have a time barium that's abnormal. You have a manometry that, while not being the classic one, is uh, consistent with type 2 achalasia. And this person is otherwise young and healthy. So what are these four treatments? The first one is the injection of Botox or botulinum A toxin to the lower esophageal sphincter. And this, I think, has uh, variable levels of success because the sphincter may not necessarily be one specific area. It's a pressure zone. And in some folks, the pressure zone is a bit longer you're also not going to get any effect if you don't inject it in the right place. And if you don't see very much achalasia where you are, you may not be as good at injecting it in the right areas that you need to. So, but assuming that all those things are not an issue, botulinum toxin is often a very commonly performed first intervention because that's what they have where they are. And so people get treated with that, they get some relief and they get sent for a sort of definitive therapy. Uh, so the next three are thought to be permanent therapies with their varying levels of success. A pneumatic dilation, which when someone in the achalasia world refers to it, they're talking about a, a rigid balloon that is 30 millimeters, 35 millimeters, or 40 millimeters in size. So a pneumatic dilation is a reasonable next choice, and it's something that has been around for a long time and does have some long-term benefit. The studies from before and now do show that there is a finite failure rate when you follow them up, as well as a finite perforation rate, generally thought to be about 1% to 2% rate of perforation, and the success, long-term success rate is about 50% in 10 years. So it's, it's a reasonable therapy. That brings you to the other two options, which is the Heller myotomy, which uh, these days are almost often done laparoscopically, or a, or a robotic variant of that. This is something that is not new. The original operation of some kind was done in 1913 by Ernst Teller, it hadn't really taken off until we were able to do this minimally invasively. Surgically speaking, a lot more people have been trained to do it. It allows you to add a partial fundification to help decrease the reflux. But it's, the, it's been around for you know several decades, the laparoscopic version of it, and has very good success rate. It's a very low morbidity rate, so I think it's a pretty good option for, for most people. The last option is a relatively newer option. Probably you know it's getting more and more popular in the last five years, which is the POEM procedure, or per-oral endoscopic myotomy. The challenges of a POEM procedure are that it can take somebody a long time to get proficient. You know, in our own study, as a high-volume achalasia center, our learning curve continued to improve for the first 100 cases. So I think that um, you know, from a safety standpoint, you know, people who, are, who do a lot of advanced endoscopy can be pretty safe in doing it after maybe five or ten POEM procedures, where at least the first two of them are proctored by somebody who has done them before. So. Those are the four general treatment options, but here we try to customize the treatment based on the patient as well as the type of achalasia that they have. 
rather than purely based on the familiarity with the procedure, because we do all of them. Um, we prefer to do a pneumatic dilation in people who are not great surgical candidates for general anesthesia, because it can often be done either under uh, sedation or uh, under a very quick general anesthesia. We prefer to offer patients who are other surgical candidates either POEM or heloromyotomy. And if you have type 2 achalasia, which is you have reasonable panesophageal pressurization, you have a relatively straight esophagus, and it's not dilated. And by dilated, I mean if it's over 5 centimeters, we prefer to do a heloromyotomy and then use the addition of a partial fundoplication as an anti-reflex procedure. And with this, we've had very good results, both relief of dysphagia, lower rates, low rates of reflux. The POEM procedure is offered for patients who are, who are reasonable surgical candidates, albeit could still be frail. Uh, for patients who have a di significantly dilated esophagus for whom we don't usually add a fundoplication with, uh, because it confuses the picture once you're done. If they have poor drainage, you don't know if it's the morphology causing it or your fundoplication. We use it for patients with type 3 achalasia because it, you know, usually they have a longer plastic segment because it is a different type. They usually have spasm or high pressure zone that is, does well beyond the lower subgenal sphincter. So addressing both the lower subgenal sphincter and the high pressure zone is where POEM has um, significant superiority over robotic or laparoscopic halomyotomy because you just can't get that high into the chest from the, through the hiatus to do the myotomy safely. People who've already had a previous halomyotomy or had numerous prior interventions, I think a POEM is a pretty reasonable option because it allows you to do a myotomy without having to battle through the surgical scars from before, whether it's from a previous halomyotomy or other prior abdominal surgery. So I think that uh, that's our general algorithm. And I think for type 1 achalasia, we sort of have to figure out if the esophagus is straight or sigmoidal before we would go with the poem route versus the halomyotomy route. And so if there's a patient preference on one or the other, I do take that into consideration, unless there's a specific reason, such as the type 3 achalasia, prior uh, abdominal surgery, or a significantly sigmoidal esophagus. And, but it is important to have the conversation with patients as to what the advantages and disadvantages are. You know, the advantages of a halomyotomy is that there's long-term data, it's been around for 20 plus years, and it's well tolerated, it's minimally invasive, the additional fundoplication is pretty reasonable. POEM does not have a fundoplication automatically associated with it, but at least at the time of the procedure there isn't. We don't have long-term data, but we do know, at least in the intermediate term data, that the risk of reflux after a POEM is, is over 50%, which for heller myotomy with the fundoplication is less than 20%. So I want to take a minute to talk about uh, the, uh, at least the debate that I have in my head all the time, every time I see a patient with achalasia, about what to do when there's a discrepancy necessarily between manometry findings as well as the morphology or the time bearing esophageal findings. Well, uh, if, if we say that type two pa patients with type 2 achalasia have good prognosis, is that true of everybody? Well, I'm not sure because if you have a very sigmoid or a sink trap esophagus, but your manometry says it's type 2, are you going to do as well as somebody who has type 1 achalasia, but their esophagus is not super dilated and is relatively straight? I would argue that morphology is as important as manometry. Um, now, I think that uh, they usually go together, so that I think that there's a reasonable correlation between the two, but it's not a perfect correlation. I would take morphology over manometry most days, with the exception of knowing whether it's type 3 or not. If someone has a very dilated esophagus, I would still prefer to do a, either a POEM or a halomyotomy based on what their preference is without, a fun, you know, without the use of a fundoplication. Okay? Because I think it's, you have to make sure that you, the esophagus drains well first 
worry about reflux later. There aren't other ways to take care of these uh, obstructive pathology. You know, medications like uh, calcium channel blockers and whatnot, which we didn't talk about, are not very effective. Nitrates, not very effective. The second element is that in a sigmoidal esophagus, in order to do a poem, you need to be able to see the lower esophageal sphincter. And if you have a sigmoidal esophagus where there's a sharp turn, where you really cannot visualize the lower esophageal sphincter, you're most likely to have an unsuccessful poem because once you're outside the tunnel, it's really hard to get the, the measurements right and whatnot, and that's a high risk of, uh, of failure. So a lot of technical challenges that you need to think about in a sigmoidal esophagus where it may not technically be possible to do a poem. A heller door versus a poem. I think that uh, we can talk about the, you know, our technique for the heller first and we'll worry about the poem, because I think the poem's um, procedure is relatively standardized. So the, uh, the, the heller myotomy, we actually prefer to do it robotically. I, I personally think it allows me to do a slightly longer esophageal myotomy than I used to be able to do. But I think that um, the myotomy failure often happens when someone, it's not that you didn't go high enough, that's relatively uncommon. It is possible, but it's because you didn't go low enough on this, on this summer. So two to three centimeters is what we recommend, at least uh, uh, on the gastric side of the myotomy. We do it over a bougie. I know that some folks do it without a bougie and then they use a hook cautery. I think that there are many ways to skin this cat, so to speak, and um, you know, if you're a cat lover, forgive my reference, but uh, you know, there's many ways to deal with this problem, and whichever way works uh, your train bin, whichever way works for you is fine, as long as the myotomy is complete and there's no perforation. But I think that uh, four to five centimeters um, is, what we, four, uh, four is what we shoot for in the, in the esophageal side, and two to three centimeters. While I like to do a five centimeter myotomy, I also have to be cognizant that you know, probably a four centimeter myotomy is adequate for most people. And, you know, it's better to stop at four if you're, if in that person that you're already well into the mediastinum uh, and have a, have a problem. Because fixing it minimally invasively can be challenging um, if you have a perforation, if you're too high in the chest. Okay, so, and then once you're done, we always do an endoscopy to make sure the lower cells of sphincter is open and uh, there's no, you know, perforation. We do a leak test uh, under you know, saline immersion. And if all that looks okay, then we proceed to doing a, um, a door fundification. You know, we try to recreate the door fundification with a minimal number of stitches because, you know, it is something that you might have to take down someday, and you're not trying to make this so scarred down that it's difficult to, to take down. Uh, we, we first tack the uh, cardiac to the left cruise while incorporating a portion of the myotomized muscle. And then we go on the greater curve for about five centimeters and then tack that to the, uh, to the right cruise and then putting intervening suture. If we open the hiatus to do the myotomy, then we'll close the cruise, which I almost always do these days. Um, and the last thing I do is that, you know, I do not take any of the short gastrics, especially I don't take them when I, when I do the front application, I take them afterwards. Because I think that one of the mechanisms by which they obstruct is that if you take too much short gastrics, the fundus can roll over, and then you can actually get the contract or the food going into the wrap and then coming out as a mechanism of obstruction. So I, then I do the fundoplication first, and then I take the short gastrics that are creating the tension, and then the rest, I just leave them alone. And that actually helps hold the, uh, the wrap in place, um, and it keeps them from um, over-rotating. Also make sure that the, the wrap isn't sutured to the cruise too far down, because that can also be, I've found that to be a, a mechanism of obstruction. Our reflux rates are relatively low, are low with, the, um, uh, with this kind of fundoplication. We do not do a toupee fundoplication. And one, I know that there are places that do, um, but I'll tell you that there, there are two reasons why I don't like to do a, um, a toupee fundoplication. While I admit that uh, a lot of patients with um, significant panesophageal pressurization 
and type 2 achalasia or even type 3 achalasia will tolerate a toupee fundoplication. Almost none of them will tolerate a Nissen, at least in my experience, that will tolerate a toupee fundoplication. I think that um, you sort of have to hope for the best and expect the worst, which is that it, achalasia is a degenerative condition and it can get worse with time. Um, so you can go from somebody with 100% panastomical pressurization to somebody with 0% panastomical pressurization in their lifetime. So then, you know, you have to go back and potentially take the rat down. And when you do a toupee for the application after a myotomy, it's quite challenging to do that, especially without perforating the esophagus. So there's that element. The second thing is I do find that even though uh, they have less reflux, they have some more dysphagia. And given that relieving dysphagia is the single most important thing to patients who have it, right, it's important to make sure that you do not surgically create a dysphagia, which you've just fixed by doing the myotomy. So for those reasons, I do not like to do that. There are some videos out there from our institution and others on YouTube that have um, that, that show our technique and others have their technique on door front application. Uh, while we're covering these technical aspects, if you do end up making a perforation while doing the myotomy, how do you like to try to fix it? You know, you, you can either do one of two things. Either you can repair it and then use the, you can cover the perforation if it's low enough with the door front application as a tissue flap, or you can close it in two layers and do, do a myotomy on, you know, on, a, on a different side, which obviously minimally basically is a little more challenging to do um, because the anterior surface is the only one that's exposed. Okay? So you could always open, close in two layers, and then do a posterior myotomy at the same time. Those are both reasonable board answers. Okay? You know, anybody who does enough of it will have some, and I think that uh, both times I just repaired it primarily. And uh, one time we uh, used a, the door front application because the perforation was low enough, and other times it was not on the lower side, so I used the omentum to uh, reinforce it as a tissue flap and did not do a door fundification. Because the most important reason why that the esophagus will leak when you have a perforation is because it pressurizes. So if you don't have a distal obstruction, they almost always will heal. Okay? But the important thing is to identify it right away and then you deal with it. And I think that the barium swallow is a reasonable technique. Uh, I think it's time to talk about uh, poem. You know, the new kid on the block. As a result, I think that there, it's it's being utilized across the board for people with achalasia, and I think it's uh, you know it's something that uh, only time will tell if it will become the standard or not. Um, at least for us, where we do where we prefer poems are in patients who have uh, you know type three achalasia, which you know a longer segment of this obviously needs to be cut, or people with uh, previous hallermyotomies. Uh, elderly, frail patients, but not so frail that they can't tolerate general anesthesia, and then for dilated esophagus. So for those who are using POEM, the uh, judicious use of POEM is primarily because of issues with reflux. At least 50, greater than 50% of patients in most studies show abnormal acid exposure after a POEM procedure, and at least a third of them have demonstrated having esophagitis um, on some amount of PPI. So I think that uh, the long-term effectiveness of POEM as a treatment modality really depends on our ability to uh, control reflux. And so at the moment, uh, we are offering hellermyotomies with, with door fundoplication for the previously described population and using POEM for the secondary population. Uh, the candidates for POEM, you know, they do require having a long discussion about them, the risks of reflux and the long-term follow-up. And I think that we follow up folks with POEM even more closely than people with hellermyotomy, mostly because there isn't enough data on uh, what are the side effects of reflux long-term. So in order to be a successful um, 
practitioner of the of poem or any kind of a esophageal intervention, you first have to be relatively skilled in doing a standard endoscopy. You know, you can't um, do a few here and there and expect that the poem is going to go smoothly. Mm -hmm. So I think it's it's meant for people who have an esophageal practice already and where they where endoscopies are, are a part of it. So the best way to do it is to find somebody who's doing it, observe them, have them make sure that when you're going to go do it that you have enough of an achalasial volume that makes it worthwhile for you to learn a new technique. And then uh, have them proctor you once or twice, make sure you do it safely, as well as keep close tabs on your patients, I mean, which is something we should recommend on all achalasia patients, but um, keep a closer tab on these folks. Um, so the technical challenges of doing the poem, I think that uh, the main thing I tell folks is that uh, before assuming that you could do a poem on somebody, we have to make sure that uh, the shape of the esophagus does allow you to do it. Very sigmoidal esophaguses are challenging to do a, a poem procedure, and they it's mostly because once you're outside the lumen, when you're in the so-called third space, you could certainly get lost, and you know, an incomplete myotomy is, uh, is not helpful to anybody. The steps of the poem are basically that you're, you're making the myotomy, uh, or excuse me, the mucosotomy, you create a submucosal tunnel um, that you carry all the way down um, to below the level of the uh, gastro or the GEJ, and then uh, you perform your myotomy um, before then closing the mucosotomy. Um, any particular tips, tricks, um, elements that you would emphasize, or is it is it quite as straightforward as that? Um, it, it's actually relatively straightforward, as you pointed out, but there are a few minor things you have to keep in mind. First is that uh, when you make a mucosotomy, you gotta you have to understand that at the end of this, when you close it, you gotta leave a full uh, segment where all the layers are intact. So you wanna start several centimeters above. If you're gonna make a two centimeter mucosotomy, you gotta make sure that you start your myotomy two centimeters before that. So whatever the length of myotomy you're planning on doing, you gotta give yourself about four or five centimeters above that when you start making your initial submucosal injection. So there's that. The second thing I would say is that, you know, you make the tunnel completely, and then you go back and you check and make sure that the submucosal flap is is intact. Sometimes on the gastric side, if you have a perforation in the mucosa or the submucosa, we can continue with the procedure um, where we make sure that uh, we do a circular myotomy because there's a serosa on the outside. The esophagus is a little bit more tricky and I'd be very hesitant to try to do a, a, full, a, a myotomy in the setting of having a perforation. But I do know people have done it and so sort of sometimes can get away with it if there's, a distal, if there's no distal obstruction. Uh, the second thing is, uh, you know, when you're doing a um, a heller myotomy, you're very sure of where, you know, how, how low in the stomach you're going, but you, you know, you're limited on how high you can go based on what you can see. The poem is the opposite. You always know how high you are in the esophagus, so you actually can control your esophageal myotomy, but it's sometimes difficult to control how far in the stomach that you go, and that is a source of failure, is incomplete you know, myotomy on the gastric side. Uh, my preferred way is just to, you know, measure the distance and then give yourself an extra centimeter or two on the stomach side. So normally when we would do two or three centimeters on the gastric side, you plan on doing a four or five centimeters so that even if you're off by a few centimeters, you will not have an incomplete myotomy. Others have used dual scopes and others, and yet others have used uh, putting a clip on the gastric side and then using uh, fluoroscopy. You know, whatever works for you, but you just have to make sure that uh, you have a strategy to make sure that uh, you have an adequate gastric myotomy. When you're doing an injection, it has a methylene blue dye and therefore just using that alone sometimes is inadequate because that dye, the leading edge of the dye is usually several centimeters beyond where you think you are actually during the tunnel. Um, other than that, I think that uh, the only other debate that will probably 
rage on forever is uh, where to do the myotomy, anterior, posterior, side, no, right, left. We have got started, we started doing them anteriorly and uh, you know, there's a lot of folks who prefer posteriorly, especially because it's easier to close the mucosotomy. There's also the, the way the tension is on the mucosal flap, it pushes pressure downwards, so there's less tearing of the mucosa. The downside is that there's constant, uh, you know, the fluid accumulates over there and it's not as dry a feel. So I prefer the anterior approach for the reason that it's usually it feels dry, but you just have to be cognizant where the ve force vectors are during your, uh, on the scope relative to your mucos mucosal flap. And the last thing is the, try to do it, be more consistent if you're gonna do it in your own practice because this allows you to then salvage folks because if you know where you did it, then you can salvage them, mm -hmm. be it with another poem or heller myotomy. For my own preference, I like to do my myotomies around uh, two o'clock. So it's on the right side, closer to the right cruise. And so when I'm doing a myotomy, uh, if I needed to rescue somebody, I can do a left-sided heller myotomy if needed. And also I know where the myotomy is if I were to do a dorsal application down the road. So being consistent has some advantages. Uh, and when you're not sure, do a heller because then you can, if possible, do a heller because you can then uh, see in real time where the um, mucosotomy is and then try to avoid it. We read about in textbooks a lot about the burnt out uh, esophagus for achalasia. When would you consider someone for a, a salvage esophagectomy? So I think that that's a good question. And I know if you have a large enough esophageal uh, practice where you have a lot of achalasia patients, some of them are going to have end stage, uh, either that's how you met them or in the course of their, uh, of their clinical condition that they've developed a sigmoidal end stage esophagus. So in my mind, there are, and this is what I tell my patients, is that there are two hard indications and one soft indication to do my esophagectomy for patients with achalasia. The two hard indications are that you have after having had an index procedure, such as a heller myotomy or a poem, lower subject sphincter is open. You're still having failure to thrive, where you're not able to take enough calories, you're losing weight, or you're having frequent episodes of aspiration pneumonia despite diet modifications. Those are the two hard indications for an esophagectomy. And I will say that just purely identifying somebody with an end-stage esophagus without a prior intervention, I wouldn't go down the road of esophagectomy just yet. There's plenty of data, both in ours as well as in uh, published series, that show that uh, a fair number of people do benefit, even if it's for a short time, in terms of improving their drainage clinically in, uh, when you do a myotomy and open up the sphincter. So, um, so after the index procedure, those are the two hard indications. Now, what's the soft indication? Well, the soft indication is that people, despite the index therapy, the drainage looks, the drainage is poor but not bad. The esophagus isn't terribly dilated. There's no, they're not, but they're clinically not doing well. Uh, if their quality of life is so poor, then I would consider it a subjectomy. But after having a prolonged discussion with them about the side effects of often um, esophagectomy, which you know, make no mistake, uh, while it's a relatively safe operation in 2020, it is by no, it is definitely a life-altering operation in terms of the your quality of life. So if someone already has poor quality of life, then I think you can make them better. But if they feel okay, but not perfect, this is not the solution. Okay. How do you keep track of these people? So I think follow-up is very important. It's not a one-and-done situation. So our pathway is that I personally follow patients every year with a time barrier follow after their primary, after their index operation, starting with their uh, the two-month mark where they get the time barrier, pH study. Mm -hmm. I don't always repeat a manometry um, one is because it's primarily an unpleasant test. 
but I think a time variable has value, a pH, um, Bravo pH study is a very well tolerated study. I think that gives you enough information to get them going on their uh, clinical course. So you get their first swallow at two months, and then I do it every year for three years. Our own data suggests that if you have most of the problems with achalasia, especially people who need re-interventions happen in the first three years. So if you can show that they're consistently draining well and clinically they're doing okay, then we extend the follow-up to every two to three years. The other thing is uh, in patients who have had a poem, because we know there's a high rate of acid reflux, I do do the first scope um, at year uh, two, even if they say they're symptomatic. And we find there's a lot of folks who have um, esophagitis and they don't take medications because they, don't, they feel fine. I now have objective evidence to then tell them that they need to take their medication and then prevent future problems, so like, like peptic strictures. I think that people need to know that the you know, vast majority of people are doing okay, and uh, so the few people that do require re-interventions, majority of them are uh, endoscopic in nature. They do need to uh, know that esophagectomy is a possibility in their future, but the likelihood is incredibly low. So they understand the entire spectrum of uh, interventions that they may encounter in their lifetime. And the last thing I would tell you is the importance of having a swallowing center. I think it's um, uh, having folks who have a shared passion for esophageal, uh, treatment of esophageal diseases is going to be very important in having an esophageal practice in an institution. So if you're interested in doing it in your career, make sure that you pair up with a gastroenterologist who's also interested in the medical side of things. because. There are so many conditions that uh, clinically mimic achalasia. There are also medical therapies that can help folks that have had um, these other, who have these other conditions that can be treated surgically. So being able to treat the folks with uh, swallowing problems in general will help you build the practice as well as identify the people who definitely need surgery to uh, improve their life. That was, uh, that's excellent. And particularly the, the portion about thinking about achalasia as a chronic condition that needs to be followed up um, long-term. And I think it's something that's not necessarily always appreciated about um, about this condition because it is so rare and described as a uh, one-fix solution from a surgical standpoint. Um, thank you for your time. Uh, this was very comprehensive, and uh, I hope it's useful for, uh, for all of the listeners. Thank you for having me, uh, Andrew, and uh, good luck to all.